Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. John Westover, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you? I'm doing well, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you back on. Uh, for my listeners who may have not uh, listened to some of the older episodes in the podcast, maybe you've just started listening uh, to Mormon Discussion, uh, you may want to go back into the archives and you'll find a couple of discussions that uh, John Westover and I have had. Uh, the first one that uh, we did, John, was on doctrine. The, the second one was on helping family to understand what members are going through when they're going through a very difficult faith transition. Today, I've got John Westover back on the program so that we can talk about different theories of faith development and in focusing, I think, on three of them primarily, uh, James Fowler's Stages of Faith, uh, William Perry's, uh, Perry's Scheme of Cognitive and Ethical Development, I believe is, is one of the titles I've heard it uh, called. And then I've also got a third one that we've... Uh, done on the podcast recently from John Paulian, uh, and his is more tied into helping us to see that this these faith transitional stages are are designed by God to help us come back to him and to, to reach back in a way to progress towards him. Uh, John Westover, start us off by just sharing with us some background on you so that maybe listeners who are not familiar with you will get a feel for, uh, for who you are and, and what your uh, educational background is. Sure. Uh, I am a professor at Utah Valley University in Orem, Utah. Uh, I teach in the management department in the business school, and I do the people side of business, so I focus on organizational behavior, organizational development, and human resource management. Those are the types of courses I teach and the type of research uh, that I do. Uh, my educational background is actually a little bit unique. I come from a sociology background, uh, which was my undergrad and a public administration background in my master's program, and then back to uh, a PhD in sociology. Uh, so I guess how that's relevant uh, to our discussion today, uh, I am by no means an expert on um, these uh, these theories of, of cognitive development, um, yet in my PhD studies I have certainly been exposed to 
many of these theories in depth. And uh, and so today, you know, I'm just I, not as an expert, but as kind of an informed um, uh, an informed individual on the on these issues. You know, I'm just going to provide some of my non-scholarly uh, thoughts <laughs> relate, related to them. I, I really want to add that caveat because I, I am not you know, a, an expert on, on Perry's, uh, uh, theories or on Fowler's theories, but, uh, but I think I can, uh, provide some context based on my educational background and what I am currently involved in. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, that's kind of the, the mode I take every week. I'm not a scholar of anything and I just throw myself out here every week trying to just talk about things. And I think, you know, as you and I talk about, um, some of the positions that these different theories take, and and also maybe some of the experience that uh, we've got and maybe some of the just natural questions that come up as we go through these. We're, we'll talk a little bit about Fowler, which I think most of the listeners will be very familiar with. And maybe just to give the absolute briefest, Fowler separates uh, his idea into six stages. Stage one and two are mostly in kind of a youth uh, adolescent stage, but stage three is kind of a, a black and white way of seeing the world, very much the authority in which you, you gauge your beliefs and your morals and your standards and your, your positions on different issues tends to be uh, extrinsic or based on outward authorities. And at some point, this stage four happens, which is kind of this transition where you begin to realize that the world is full of complexity. And then the stage five is kind of working back in a way that um, you put everything back together, but it's just completely different. And I know, again, that may sound really silly to give that overview, but what I'm hoping to do, John, is have you introduce us to, to Perry's scheme and begin to kind of take us into it. And then we'll just stop every so often and kind of interject Fowler and, uh, and some of the thoughts of John Paulian. And I think you'll find, uh, I'm talking to listeners, I think you'll find that these just really blend together well and, and I think help us all to realize what this journey is all about. So with that, John, go ahead and, uh, and uh, get us started. Sure. And, and before I jump into Perry specifically, uh, I thought maybe it's worth just acknowledging that there really are a lot of these different um, theories and typologies of psychological and cognitive, moral and ethical development. So you already referred to Fowler. Uh, he's one that's often cited, um, you know, in, in these types of discussions regarding uh, religion and faith. Uh, Perry's is a little bit less common uh, to be discussed, but uh, we're going to explore that today. Um, but Jean Piaget, the theory of cognitive development, is another popular one. Eric Erickson and stages of psychosocial development is another common one. Uh, Kohlberg's stages of moral development. Uh, and then there's just kind of the general field of of developmental psychology and psychology of religion and developmental approaches to religion. There are all of these different um, fields of study uh, with all of these different theories and typologies. And, and I think there's value in each of these. Um, it's, it's, I suppose it's just important to recognize what a theory is and what it isn't and, uh, and what role these typologies can play in helping us make sense of the world around us. Uh, theories by, and typologies by their very nature are general. Uh, they uh, certainly don't get into all the specifics and they don't apply in every situation. Uh, you, can, you can pick up any theory in any social science field, for example, and there will always be exceptions to these theories. Um, so they're not absolutes. And which is kind of an interesting thing to mention, given what we're talking about today. But uh, 
there, there's just not a lot of absolutes. It's, it's about uh, frameworks and trying to understand uh, different approaches to understanding the, the context we find ourselves in. So I just wanted to provide that brief um, little overview on, on some of these different types of uh, approaches and theories that are out there. Yeah, and I think it's important, as you're noting, as we go through these, each of these, uh, these theorists have separated this development into stages. But in reality, there's no such thing as a stage. We, we each are just kind of moving through life and little by little we're changing. And they're trying to make designated markers on when a direct shift has occurred. But there's no way to say that any of us have our, both of our feet in any one stage or that we've, that we've gotten to this point so we've arrived here, but rather that this is a lot more fluid than, than these theories probably sound. Is that, is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fluid. Um, like you said, we, we often have different feet in different stages, uh, and different aspects of our lives tend to fit better with, um, with different aspects of these typologies. And so I think it's a mistake uh, right off the bat. You know, we should, we should just say it's a mistake to try to oversimplify to the point of saying, you know, I fall into this stage or I fall into this position or whatever. Uh, maybe one aspect of your life does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, the way I tend to see it is that in any of these stages or positions that it's kind of a sliding scale and you find yourself somewhere along that scale, maybe closer to one end or the other or somewhere in the middle. And, and that's, it's not as neat and tidy and, it, but that just, reflects the, the natural complexity of the world we live in and our own development. It's not neat and tidy. And so uh, there's there's a, a tendency I think people have sometimes to look at these types of stages, uh, stage models or typologies, and, and, uh, and then use them as a theory, as a model. Of course, it's simplistic. That's the per- I mean, that's why we have models is because we're trying to make sense of a complex world through a simple model. But in the application of it, of course, it's going to be messy. And of course, it's not going to always apply directly. And of course, we will find ourselves in different areas depending on what aspect of our life we're talking about or what aspect of belief we're talking about. Um, so as long as we kind of understand that up front, I think I think it's it's good to move forward in talking about these. I think it's also important to just mention up front that these uh, typologies, these models, these are tools for us to self-reflect and to examine ourselves and where we're at and where we're going. Uh, these are not tools to, you know, sit in our little theorist armchairs and, and judge other people. And, you know, <laughs> I can sit back in my office and I can say, well, wait a minute, this person, they really seem like they're, you know, a Fowler stage three. And then with that comes all of this implicit or explicit judgment that, that might, that one might associate with it. Um, that's not the point of these. It's, it's not my, my point to judge anybody else. Um, but it can be helpful in understanding the context I find myself in. And certainly, uh, it could be useful for myself as I try to, um, think about where I'm at, where I'm going. So. Right. Yeah, I've heard Dan Witherspoon say that it that these can be used as a personal guide, but not as a club to beat someone over the head with. So absolutely. Okay. Um, so so a little bit about Perry. Uh, first, just a little bit of background um, to William Perry. Uh, he's a well-known educational psychologist. He studied cognitive development of students in their college years, and so that's one caveat. Uh, most of his studies uh, were looking at college-age uh, students. 
uh, in, in trying to make sense of their development in, in that kind of pivotal time of, of, develop, uh, of their uh, intellectual and cognitive development. Uh, he was professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and really had a long storied career. So, so he's a well-known individual, uh, a, a well-known individual, a well-known, uh, person as it relates to intellectual and cognitive development. Um, so I think it's, it is worth exploring his model. Uh, he breaks, you know, with Fowler, we talk about typically the five stages. With Perry, he breaks it into, uh, nine different positions. Uh, so it's a little bit more uh, spread out, uh, but we can find some overlap with other models like Fowler's. And we can lump these nine positions into really three uh, general categories. Uh, so one, the first one, uh, we can title dualism modified. Uh, and in this this place, this is what we might typically see as, as kind of a Fowler uh, stage one to two, uh, maybe even a, a Fowler three. Um, person who tends to th- see things, you know, as an external external authority influencing uh, our choices and behaviors and our decision making, um, and it, it's a little bit more black and white. And uh, we we may recognize that the good authorities in our life aren't always perfect, but generally speaking, we see them as people we can look to and trust uh, as the model for how we should be living our lives. Um, the next kind of s- section would be then relativism discovered, and this would include uh, Perry's positions four and five. And this might align a bit with uh, what we would typically think of a, as a Fowler four type stage. Uh, in this, in these positions, uh, people understand how context works. They understand that theories are not truth but metaphors to interpret data. Uh, and you have to think about your thinking and you have to think about the process of knowledge and what, what, what knowledge means and, and, uh, epistemology of, 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 of those inputs around us. Uh, and then the third section would be commitments, commitments in relativism developed. And this would probably align more or less with a Fowler five type stage. And these are positions six through nine. Uh, culminating in position nine, uh, where you just start to come to a certain comfort level with the complexity and ambiguity in the world. Um, you understand that things are tentative, uh, but you're still able and willing to fight for your values while respecting others and their difference. Uh, you can believe your deepest values to be right, yet still be open to learning from other people. Um, and, and overall, you just see life as a, a one long journey. So it's not something you ever arrive at, but you're, you're, uh, always trying to learn and grow, uh, and recontextualize and understand better how you, uh, how you interact with other people and vice versa and how that shapes your understanding and the world around you. Excellent. Excellent. I, uh, I know that you and I have a document that we're using for this that, uh, in a way relates Perry's scheme to, to kind of, you know, the Garden of Eden and the, and the snake trying to tempt, uh, Eve and, and Adam and kind of this whole process. And I, I want to kind of play into that. So I'm hoping maybe you can kind of start us off with position one 
and relate to us maybe some of the finer points of that position and maybe we can kind of have a discussion about those. Uh, yeah. In position one, basically, it's it's all about authority. So the authority, whoever that is, and for a small child's development, that would, of course, be their parents, and they, they just trust their parents um, as the bearer of all knowledge and truth. And there's this clear, um, direct authority uh, in this person. Um, we should understand that they have all the correct answers, and we follow them in everything that they tell us to do. So, you know, if we're thinking, you know, I, I can look at my three-year-old or my five-year-old and I can clearly see, you know, how uh, I, I, you know, I certainly am not a perfect parent, but they more or less see me as, you know, this perfect authority figure who they're going to see every word uh, that I say as the right thing. Um, and uh, that tends to be at the lower, you know, at the younger levels of, of uh, development uh, in children. Uh, but at some point... We, we go through these transitions, and this is something I really like about Perry's scheme, is that he frames these transition points uh, where we're going through our, our day-to-day lives, and then all of a sudden something clicks uh, within us, and we start to realize that, well, wait a minute, the way I'm functioning and the way I'm viewing things maybe can't account for everything, and maybe maybe it's more complex than this. So in position one, we uh, you know eventually we start to have a transition and we realize that there are other people. There are other parents, for example. Um, they have different opinions. This introduces uncertainties. And now we realize that authorities actually disagree on certain points that we used to take for granted as just being right um, because it came from authority. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, too. So in just to kind of add into that, this position one, uh, there's the comment here. It says, the person perceives meaning divided into two realms, good and bad, right and wrong, we, they, success, failure. So as you're pointing out, it's a very, it's a very black and white way of seeing the world. But then it also says that uh, there are absolute answers for every problem and the authorities know them. And then you're talking about this transition where we realize, as you point out in your example of your children, that there's other parents and they hold different views. I find the comment on this position interesting. It says, now the person moves to accept that there is diversity, but they still think there are true authorities who are right, but the other authorities are confused by complexities or just frauds. And I can just picture in the example you gave, you know, your kids standing next to the kids from the neighbors down the street, and there's this little argument, right? My parents are right. No, my parents are right. Yeah, exactly. And it's this whole idea that, yes, there is a difference of opinion, but my authorities are still the correct authority. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you start to go through that transition, then you find yourself into position two where there are true and untrue authorities and they're my authority is the right authority and the rest are frauds. Um, and so I'm still right and I can still trust in, in the right answers for my authority and everyone else is wrong. Right. So that's, that's the idea now in, in, in position two of Perry. And yeah, we, we see this in kids all the time, right? Uh, at least I see it with my kids uh, because different households have different rules, for example. And they say, well, my friends do this in their house. <laughs> and I say, well, that's fine for them. For us, this is what we do. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I feel like with young children, you're constantly having that kind of a discussion um, to help them understand that it's okay for their friends to do things differently. Uh, but in our house, this is what we're doing and this is why. So how would this look if we're going to compare this to the gospel? I mean, the, the listeners here are members of the church. They're, they're pondering on how this faith transition works. Any thoughts on how position one and two might look within, uh, within the LDS faith? Um, well, sure. I think, I think at a minimum, I, again, these, these positions tend to be with, with 
fall within the root, the youth. So I would say primary children, even uh, the uh, the young men and young women, would typically be the people we would see kind of in these positions. Um, and not exclusively, there's, there could be uh, older people who would find themselves in these positions as well. Uh, but it's the, the church is pretty simple when you're young, right? The church is true. You know it's true. You follow the prophet. You know the prophet gives you good answers to everything. Other people have different opinions, um, and but they're wrong, and you know they may even be deceitful or fraudulent, and and just follow the prophet. Um, uh, but you know we start this we, as we kind of get a little bit older and gain a little bit more experience, and we start to think a little bit more deeply. Then all of a sudden we start to realize, well, wait a minute, you know that that's all fine and good, but this simplistic model that I learned in primary from the time I'm just a little child, uh, over time I have to, to start to recognize that prophets, for example, they're not perfect. They they can make mistakes. And that's, you know, someone at a position one, I don't think they're even, in a, they're not able to even acknowledge that because it, that wouldn't even make sense to them. Um, when they start to get into position two, they probably, that still probably wouldn't make sense to them because if there's any anything that was an actual mistake, they would just say, well, no, the, the others, they're the wrong ones. And, and this person, whatever they did was right because they did it. And by definition, it must be right because they're the ones who did it and they're the authority figure. Um, but then we start to transition into this position three, um, where we, we start to acknowledge that even the good authorities, even the ones we hold as the right authorities, they don't claim to always be right. They, uh, they admit that they don't know all the answers. Uh, and so at this point, uh, then we move into kind of a position three where we recognize that there are some uncertainties, there are differences of, differences of opinion there that are real and legitimate, even for authorities. And it's, it's more of a process, uh, in, in getting to, tr- you know, truth with a capital T. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, if we're, if we're comparing back to Fowler, that's probably we, what, you know, we would compare to a Fowler stage three. And that's where I think a lot of people kind of end up and find their comfort zone in and tend to kind of sit in that space where they're comfortable with a little bit of uncertainty and ambiguity. They understand people aren't perfect, uh, but they still trust in these um, authorities to dispense of absolute truth with a capital T. Yeah. And I had mentioned earlier that the, this idea behind Perry's scheme and, and the article that you and I are working off of, that it kind of compares things to the Garden of Eden. I just want to kind of play along with this just briefly, just so that listeners can kind of get a feel. But in Perry's scheme, position one, the note here we've got is uh, is that this is the Garden of Eden position, uh, that all will be well. And if you can just picture Adam and Eve in the garden mm-hmm. uh, before Lucifer even comes along, you know, everything is perfect. Everything is as it should be. God's passing out all the information and our job is just to do everything that uh, that's being asked of us. And we just kind of follow along and everything just fits perfectly. Um, you talked about position two. Uh, the, the comment here on this article is resisting the snake. It's, you know, the snake comes along, he presents his ideas, but his ideas are absolutely false and have no truth to them whatsoever. And the idea is just to simply, you know, scoff him off and and push that aside and just say, look, you know, God's giving all the true information and this this snake has no information of value. And then as you're beginning to talk about position three, it's this idea that the snake's logic is considered that, wait a minute, there might Mm -hmm. be some amount of truth to what's being said. I also wanted to state, too, and bring in John Pauly. And again, with this episode, all of these 
articles that we're working off of, as well as uh, maybe even Wikipedia articles on Fowler and Perry. We'll include all those. But in Paulian's uh, religious paradigm, he, can, he calls stage one the romance stage, and I think it fits very much with this position one and two of, of what we're talking about. He says, the first stage is initial acquaintance with God. I sometimes call this the romance stage. It is a time of first love with great joy in walking with God. At the same time, there is not a lot of knowledge, so the person is vulnerable to superstition. The key at this stage is connecting with a community that can nurture and train the new believer in a healthy way. And I think that leads us right into uh, to this position three and four of Perry and position or uh, stage three with Fowler, where things are just kind of accepted at face value. Again, you realize that there's... There's other points of view out there, but you're still pretty certain that the authorities that are passing you the information in your faith community still are the the authentic ones. They're the ones who are are giving the the straight truth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, and I really like the the Garden of Eden um, uh, analogy. I think fits well with this. And as we're talking about young children or people, kind of. Uh, young in their faith and within the gospel, even, you know, say a new convert, even at an older, um, age, you know, I think, I think when we, we enter, enter into the gospel, um, context, we tend to keep this kind of a, a simple, uh, straightforward, um, uh, understanding of, of everything. I mean, that's what the missionaries teach, for example. And so when they're, uh, finding converts, uh, people tend to at least initially, um, start out with that kind of a, uh, of, uh, I, I hate to say simple because I don't mean to be like, say that simple minded. I'm just saying it's kind of a, a basic, pure kind of a, uh, understanding that, that connects with them and resonates with them. And so then they're, they're willing and ready to, to commit and move forward. Right. And so we see, we see that in converts all the time too. Yeah. And, and with Perry's scheme and beginning to get into position four, and then thinking of Fowler and, and I think his stage uh, three and stage four, maybe run us through Perry's positions here. And, and maybe we'll spend probably the most amount of time on this section because this is kind of where, as we begin to, to think about these things, this is kind of where our worlds kind of get turned upside down. Yeah, so once we start to transition into a, a Perry position four, um, you know, we, we have this transition point. There are so many things, you know, we realize there are so many things that our authority figures don't know. And uh, they don't have the answer to all of these things that are maybe important to us. Uh, and perhaps they, they perhaps they even acknowledge that they don't know. And they may even acknowledge that they may never know or they may never know for a very long time. And so now all of a sudden we have to decide, well, okay, are we just going to shelf that? Are we just going to say, you know, that's not important for us to understand? Or are we going to start looking for answers elsewhere. Um, and then we, so now we're starting to transition into uh, position four and, and Fowler actually breaks this down into um, kind of a first and second half of position four where authorities don't necessarily have all the right answers, uh, but they do have opinion and there's not necessarily wrong or right opinion, uh, but they just have opinion. And so now the question becomes, how do I back up my opinion with some sort of facts, some sort of reasons um, that support whatever you know I'm proclaiming as truth or good advice or whatever the case may be, right? And so, so now we're starting to recognize there that there is not only 
diversity in opinion, but our authority doesn't necessarily have the corner on all of the truth or all of the knowledge and that there are other places out there that can contribute. And now we have to start sifting through that and trying to understand um, and evaluate these other sources and find ways to, uh, to yeah, just, just to evaluate them. So this then moves us into kind of this relativism discovered. And I understand for many in the church, just using the word relativism, <laughs> moral relativity <laughs> is kind of a loaded term and may turn people off. Um, but the idea here is, again, we just we don't have certainty in any of these authorities because people can be wrong. And there are all these divert. There all are all of these um, diverse views. And there's all of these different evidences from a variety of sources. And we may even look at our authority figures as not asking the right question as we perceive it. Um, that maybe we feel like they're trying to make us think about it in a certain way, but we think there's another framing that also is valid. And so now, like you said, Bill, our, our, our conceptualization of the world around us is blowing up a little bit. It's not as, as clean and tidy as it once was where we can just kind of turn to our, uh, external authority figure as at least the person who has most of the knowledge and truth for us. And now we're realizing that it's, it's just messy by its very nature and we, we have to learn to evaluate. Did you have a comment? No, this, that can be kind of a traumatic time. I was going to go back here to, to Paulian's work in, and he, so Fowler calls this kind of before this transition, he calls this stage three. And it's a very, it's a very simple way of seeing the world. Things are just kind of put into dichotomies. And I can, I can personally speak to the idea that I remember seeing the world that way. And Paulian numbers this a stage two and he calls this the disciple, uh, discipleship stage. He says the second stage I call the learning or discipleship stage. It is a time when new believers explore, study, learn how to fit into their new spiritual community. Finding the right uh, mentor is crucial at this stage as people are eager to learn and can be often led astray. This is a time of high confidence where new believers feel that they have found the truth and can become somewhat legalistic and inflexible. He then calls the next stage, he says stage three, and he calls this the success stage. And he says at some point in the third stage, usually somewhere between the ages of 30 and 50, and I want to say too, Fowler and Perry are both studying college students and how they develop. Paulian is dealing with members of a faith community and how they develop simply within that faith community. So as we talked about earlier, these theories are going to have similarities, but they're also going to differ on a lot of points as well. And they're really attacking the same ideas from different perspectives. It may be how college students adapt to college life, which Fowler and Perry are both looking at. Whereas Paulian's simply looking at members of a church and how they deal with religious nuance. So he calls this stage three the, uh, the success stage, says it happens between the age of 30 and 50. He says most people of faith experience, of faith, I'm sorry, of faith experience what I call the dark night of the soul. This is a personal crisis where past certainties become inadequate, where you begin, begin to question everything you have ever believed and find God to be silent or distant. This frightening experience is not destructive, but a doubt that leads to greater faith because it strips away the subtle selfishness that permeated the success stage without our being aware of it. Now that may sound like a lot of rambling. I want to, I want to just take a moment and go into a little bit more detail of this stage two, which is the disciple, discipleship stage. 
he he makes a comment about how we would recognize someone in that stage. And again, I don't like we talked about earlier. I don't want these stages to be used as a club. I'd rather us look at ourselves and maybe see when we were there and what caused us to make these transitions. And so, how would I recognize myself in this stage three? It says, "How would you recognize that someone is in?" I'm sorry, stage two. How would you recognize that someone is in stage two? Stage two believers have a strong desire to follow. Um, it says, "What are they looking for?" Believers can suffer a bit from spiritual inflexibility. Another weakness of this stage is a tendency to like easy answers. Stage two believers, I think it says Pauli in stage two. This might be compared to follower stage three. Stage two believers are not very fond of nuance, but as they grow spiritually, they will want more and more solid food. And this is not a Latter-day Saint, but here he's referring to kind of to a milk and meat uh, type of thought. He then talks about black and white thinking. He says this this stage two uh, discipleship stage, believers can become very legalistic and judgmental. Their lives can be governed by should or oughts or must. And they can be quite frustrated with believers who don't see things quite that way, quite the way they do. If they don't grow out of their initial inflexibility and simplicity of thought, they can become rigid in their approach to faith. If they have been taught one particular perspective by an influential teacher or mentor, they may conclude that their teacher's way is the only way to think or act. They may feel that everybody needs to do things that way. They may even be inclined to punish offenders if they are in a position to do so. And worst of all, they can see their own rigidity. They see things... I'm sorry, they cannot see their own rigidity. They see things in terms of black and white, us against them. They feel right and strong while other perspectives are wrong and weak. Every spiritual community has some stage two members that have become stuck here. So this is not a place we should stay forever. The The natural tr- positions of life would would compel us to progress and to become more like Christ. And, and I think we can kind of set him as the ideal who is able to a- handle nuance and complexity and does it beautifully. But many members of various religious faith traditions can kind of get stuck in this black and white stage. Paulian finishes by saying how to handle, how to help and handle those in this stage to move on, to progress. He says, while stage two believers are stuck and can be unpleasant to deal with, the only way forward is through nurturing relationships with the community and with godly mentors. Rigid believers have placed head, have placed a head, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop here for a second because he's got a grammar error that's not edited. Um, he says here, rigid believers have placed head ahead of heart and certain beliefs ahead of relationships. Such rigidity will remain unless through spiritual nurture, they gain some self-awareness of what is wrong and they find encouragement to repent and renew relationships that have been broken. The mentor must resist the temptation to strike back in kind but instead be gentle, humble, and teachable. And and I'll stop there, but I'll just add in a personal experience. I know often in Sunday school or in a meeting in church, somebody will say something that I see as a very black and white way of approaching the of the gospel. And my first reaction is to want to in a in a I don't I don't want to say angry, but in a forceful way say, look, you've got this wrong. There's other ways to see this. 
And as Pauline is pointing out, we need to step back from that and not take the I need to fix you approach because there's no such thing as any of these stages being wrong. They are simply a position of natural development. And so while while God is calling us all to leave that black and white stage and to begin when it is safe for us to see the world with nuance, we also don't need to grab people by the arm and force them to see the world our way. Yeah, and I kind of think of that in terms of like what we might call righteous indignation, right? So sometimes you're you're sitting in a lesson or you're listening to a talk or you have some sort of interaction and it's very easy for us. I think it's human nature that we just we can pass judgment and oftentimes we justify uh that judgment and we say well it's some sort of some form of righteous indignation towards this individual who's obviously wrong and obviously insensitive or you know whatever the case may be uh and of course we have to be very careful with that because you know we're, we're not really supposed to be judging those around us and we're all in different places and we're all we all have different experiences and backgrounds um, I, I, I just thought of an example, too, actually from uh, this Sunday. Uh, we had our primary program this Sunday. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. You know, I love to see all the kids up there, and my kids, you know, are up there participating, and, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, you know, my ward is probably is the case in many wards when they have a primary program. They have lots of visitors. And the uh, the family, there, there, was, there was a family sitting behind my family uh, who was visiting, and, and I happened to know quite well, you know, who they're related to in our ward, and uh, they were a little bit older, so it was, it was uh, the mother and father of one of the uh, one of the families in our ward that's about my age, and some of their older children also visiting. Uh, so anyways, uh, we're going through sacrament meeting, and, and I would just hear these kind of random comments coming from behind me uh, every so often, uh, and, and at one point, uh, the, the man behind me actually made the comment regarding one of the uh, the priests who was up front at the at the table uh, preparing breaking the bread uh, to bless the sacrament and he he made a rather loud statement um, to you know all of his family and his older sons that were there with them and I'm sure people all around him could hear <laughs> a rather loud statement about how inappropriate it was that this this uh, priest who was up there preparing the sacrament had a had a non-white shirt on and he went on. He went on about it for a little while, and he started, you know, quoting um, a few different general authorities who have talked about, you know, wearing a white shirt when you're uh, blessing the sacrament and, and these types of things. And I have to admit, my very first—I'm just sitting there in front hearing this—and my very first thought is one of judgment. My very first thought is one of kind of what I would say is some sort of righteous indignation and I I wanted to turn around to him and tell him to back off <laughs> you know what I mean and and uh, and he was being kind of loud about it and the family of this young man was sitting just across the aisle from him and they probably heard it and <laughs> and I, it just bugged me um, but you know as as the primary program goes on and the cute little kids are up there doing their thing and and by the end of uh, the sacrament meeting you know i i'm able to have a little bit of perspective and i realize this this man he has i'm i'm sure he's a perfectly delightful person i'm sure he's a great father i'm sure he um i'm sure he cares dearly for his children and for his grandchildren and i'm sure that he tries to serve those in his ward and i'm sure that he's a good person and for whatever reason, the, the non-white shirt struck a chord with him and he felt the need to, to comment on it. But, 
you know, that doesn't mean that I have to then do the same thing and then <laughs> have, have his comment strike a chord with me and then judge him on it. Um, so we, we need to be a little bit careful of that kind of interplay and that interaction. You know, from my standpoint, I just think how absurd to, to uh, you know, go off on a, a 16-year-old kid for wearing a, non, a non-white shirt. But, uh, you know, that's that's part of the issue here is as we go through these types of stages, you know, uh, we, we have to, by the nature of, of introducing flexibility to all of this, then we have to allow for that difference um, of others from the way we view things. And obviously for this gentleman, he viewed that as a, as a very uh, important rule that had to be followed and it wasn't being. And so he felt like it was, you know, detracting from his sacrament experience and that was a real reaction for him. It's not one that I agree with, but it's it's one that he was having. And so we we're, we're put in these situations where we always have to navigate, um, you know, these these types of differences of content of uh, conceptualization of our context, and and we just need to find ways. It can be very difficult, but we need to find ways to just be generous and charitable with the, with people who just see things differently than we do. So just like I would hope that people would allow me to view things differently I need to also allow them to view things differently than the way I do and that's not always an easy thing to accept right and and God knowing each of us best right we all start off in these stages where we just need tons of structure and things need to be simpler and and things need to be kind of understood in a, a you know a di- uh, in a way kind of like a dichotomy it's protective of us and i think we all need that at certain in these you know early times in our life and for some of us it may be older than another person we again we shouldn't be judgmental it shouldn't be like oh my goodness he's 50 years old and he's still seeing things black and white there's a tendency to feel that but that shouldn't be the response we have some people simply need that structure that that kind of safety net to be able to uh, progress within their faith and and it, again, it shouldn't be a, a club to hit somebody over the head. We're, we're talking about, here in a moment, we're going to talk about kind of this dark night of the soul and how Fowler maybe and, and Perry for sure incorporate this, this, I think, is probably the most dramatic twist in this transition of faith. But I just want to maybe speak for just a moment. Paulian sets this up by talking about his stage three he calls the success stage. And he essentially says that, we get to this point in our life where everything works. It feels like we've arrived. It feels like we've connected all the dots and, and faith is at the pinnacle of, of where it is. We just, we expect, okay, I've gotten here. This is it. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Life is, is going along smoothly and, and there's very little questions and you feel like you have the answers to all of these things. And then all of a sudden comes this huge transition. Uh, maybe using Perry, talk a little bit about this kind of shift from, from a black and white world to all of a sudden you wake up one day in nuances all around you. Yeah, so, so again, if we go back to Perry, uh, position four, at this point, we're really recognizing that authorities don't have all the right answers, that there's all these different, um, all these different evidences around us for all these different questions, many of which, um, are questions that our traditional authorities don't even, uh, in any way acknowledge or respond to, right? Uh, and we can certainly see that within, you know, a faith community or within the LDS church. I mean, there are certain questions that, you know, our, our church authorities tend to focus on. And then there are a huge range of other questions that they don't even touch. Right. And so once we start to see these questions and we start to feel like these are important questions and they're not 
dealing with them, well, how am I supposed to deal with it? We start to realize that there are, you know, we, we, it's very easy at this point to, to come to a place of some sort of a relativistic, um, view of the world where there's no necessary, no necessary right or wrong. There's just differences of opinions and it comes down to evidence and who has the stronger case, who makes the better argument, who has the better evidence. Um, and this often works uh, for people. Uh, but if everything is relative, that's also disquieting, right? And so now all of a sudden I come from this place where I have all the answers. I know exactly my trajectory in life. I know what I'm supposed to do. I have all the, the goalposts along the way to, to guide what I'm doing. And now all of a sudden I'm not sure uh, if what these authorities told me are exactly what I should be doing and, and how do I weight all these different evidences. Um, now, uh, I have to wrestle with this relativity and I have to wrestle with, are all of these different views and opinions, are they equally valid? Um, so initially we start to think, well, yes, there's no right or wrong. It's just, um, all these different opinions. Um, but then we start to learn kind of the, the intellectual process and the scientific method. And we learn how to examine and we start to realize that not everything is equally valid. Uh, some, some things are stronger evidences than others. Some things are make more sense than others or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so we have to understand how context around us works. And in position five of Perry, now we start to see that theories aren't necessarily truth, again, with a capital T, like we would look at it back in position three, but it's truth is metaphor to interpret data. It's, it's a way of framing um, the context around us. So now you have to think about how you, th how you're thinking. Now you, now this kind of gets back into the idea of look, you know, looking at epistemology and understanding the origins of our knowledge and what we know and how we know. Uh, I see this kind of in the, in the church testimony meeting, um, phenomenon where, you know, people will, will share a testimony with all these absolutes of knowledge on everything. Uh, oftentimes for a person who finds themselves moving into, say, a Fowler 4 or a Perry uh, position 4 or 5, they simply don't feel like they can say they know because they they give a different meaning to that word and it's a pro they give a different uh, meaning to the process of knowledge and gaining knowledge and what that means. Um, and so now uh, they have to kind of reconceptualize their thinking and why they think how they think. Um, and, and that's, that's where the dark night of the soul comes in because now everything that was so certain is now uncertain and, and you're put in a position where you kind of have to deconstruct and reconstruct your, your, uh, your beliefs and your values and your, your faith. Yeah. And I, I want to bring, uh, and again, we're just kind of shifting back and forth. Uh, specifically between Perry and, and uh, Paulian, but uh, Fowler obviously sets this up very well too. And, and he he talks about the idea Fowler does in this transition between this black and white and nuance of this happens really well if we're doing this in our early 20s, if we're doing this as a college student, but that if this transition doesn't happen until our 30s, 40s, 50s, that there's this opportunity for great turmoil in this transition that this that we've gone so long having this really safe and secure box that everything fit into and all of a sudden one day you wake up and that doesn't work and you realize well if this doesn't work then nothing works and there's the tendency to want to throw it all out and so Fowler says that the earlier we can kind of make this transition the better and the reason I say that is because if there are members 
of our wards who who tend to be a little more black and white thinking if out of simply concern and love for them and a desire to help them to come unto Christ the last thing we should be doing is just ripping that that foundation out from under them it needs to be with any of us whether we're in our 20s 30s 40s 50s it needs to be a gentle transition and the more uh the more that happens suddenly or over a short amount of time the more opportunity there is for that to be just a a really bad experience and and i can speak personally that that this dark night of the soul for me was just that it was an awful moment that lasted for me probably uh 2 years and i know for some people it's lasted a decade and and so we we need to make this transition for everyone as as smooth as possible paulian says this and i think this will the listeners will very much feel like this speaks to their heart. Pauline is a Christian pastor. He writes this article to other Christian pastors. So there's one line in here that has to do with that. But I think this will speak to this uh, this difficult transition. He says, at the very height of spiritual success, something tends to happen that we least expect, usually between the ages of 30 and 50. When followers are increasing, people are feeling blessed, funds are flowing in to support the ministry, and awards are being given, comes a very unwelcomed guest. It is a personal crisis many have called the dark night of the soul. Past certainties suddenly become inadequate. We call into question everything we have ever believed and everything we have ever done. We feel like failures, like we can't do anything right. We are humbled. Our world caves in. Our faith, which sustained us powerfully up until this point, doesn't seem to work anymore. All of our answers are replaced with questions. God either vanishes from view or breaks out of the comfortable box we held him in. We hit bottom. We reach the end of our rope. We hit the wall and can seem to go no further on the spiritual journey. We have saved others. But ourselves we cannot save. We feel completely alone and abandoned by God. As one person put it, just when I got it all together, I forgot where I put it. And uh, and I think that speaks to this, the kind of the, the worst of the worst of how this transition can feel if it's not, if it's not one that we have a lot of support as we go through. Yeah, and I just want to, I, I, he, he says that so eloquently. I, I love how he says that better than, I, I certainly could express it, and it resonates with me too. I've, I've had similar experiences, and I've seen other loved ones have similar experiences. Um, the thing that I just want to emphasize—you said it before sharing that quote—is that this is such a unique. Even though we see similarities in the type of experience people have, it is such a unique experience for each and every individual, and it's always on their own timeline. And so. We we have to be so careful, you know, to say, well, this is something you can deal with. You know, one person might be able to kind of work his way through it or her way through it within a month or two. Maybe another person takes them six months. Maybe another person takes them a year or two years. Other people, it might take a decade. Other people may never really work their way through it. And you can imagine how agonizing that would be on a perpetual basis of just kind of dealing with that. Um, and yet that's, that's kind of the, the state that, that many people find themselves in. And so as we're seeking to help and aid those around us who are going through these difficult transitions, we need to respect the individuality, the individuality of their lived experience in relation to this dark night of the soul, um, while also, you know, finding ways that we might be able to, um, kind of 
guide and uh, you know hold their hand and lead them by the hand um, to a place of, of comfort and a place of uh, uh, that they can get past this anguish that they're feeling. And that, that's but that's a very difficult thing when it's so individualized. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned that the article that Paul in Paulian's article he talks often about mentors, and for me, the word mentor is one who is willing and able to help. But when he's asked and needed, it's, it's not a matter of drag. See, I know how this feels, right? When, when you begin to accept the nuance in the world, all of a sudden there's very few people around you who can have those same kind of conversations. And so there's a, there's a need within us to try to get as many people as we can to where we're at so that we have other people who can share in that common experience. But that's not healthy to try and pull people to where you're at because again, the quicker you do that, if it's, if it's something that happens over a short amount of time, it's going to cause absolute turmoil in their life. And so you're better off letting people essentially move at their own pace. And when they need help, when they appear to be asking for it, when they're reaching out for it, make yourself known as one who's willing and able to help. But let them make the initial move towards grabbing you and uh, in incorporating you into helping them through that. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I also want to say, too, you hit on this, that there's lots of negative things that can happen. People who go through this dark night of the soul can, can abandon faith altogether, uh, which, which is not something you or I want for, for their situation. Uh, Paulian talks about this dark night of the soul being a call from God to progress. The other thing some people will do is they will, as you mentioned, go back to this, this black and white way of thinking. It's, it's so scary. It's so threatening to move out of that that they simply retreat back to a place of safety. Again, not healthy to grab them and force them through. Uh, it, it needs to be on their own terms, on their own time. But yes, there are different ways people handle this transition. Some of them go back to a previous stage and will simply need more time to, to work through it. Others will abandon faith altogether, and, and that we certainly don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I know that, uh, you know, the, the audience of this podcast is, is one of, you know, trying to find ways to make it work and leading with faith. I know there are people who, um, who struggle in this kind of, this dark night of the soul gray area, uh, who don't always, you know, fall on the side of, of leading with faith within the LDS church. And I think it's important to acknowledge, um, just as, as we say in our own article of faith, that we respect and we allow for everyone to worship, you know, however they may. And for some people, that's choosing not to worship and, uh, a God. And for other people, that may mean worshiping in a different faith community. Um, you know, for you and I, we certainly hope that this faith community that we love and value will be the home for, for everyone. Um, but that doesn't mean it's coming from a place of judgment that, we're saying anyone who makes a different choice that all of a sudden these people are, you know, some, you know, we're not applying the apostate label or in some way trying to pass that judgment. Uh, you know, we fully recognize that people go through this anguish and it's so difficult, particularly when they've been taught in a certain way their entire lives. And now they're realizing that that kind of more simplistic way of, of how they uh, came to know the gospel doesn't always work. Um, you know, we certainly recognize that that can lead people away, and and we just hope that they they will find um, love and safety and security within the church, uh, and stay with us. Um, but we also, of course, have to respect the difference of of uh, belief and opinion if they choose to worship in another way. 
No, I appreciate that, John. Obviously, the the purpose of the podcast is to help others lead with faith. But but like you, and I, and I'm thinking about. I just did an episode this morning, which which either released just before or after this one, where I incorporated Elder Oaks talk from the last conference, as well as Elder uh, um, M. Russell Ballard's talk from several years ago. And his title of his talk was "The Doctrine of Inclusion." And in both Elder Oaks and in Elder Ballard's talk, they both essentially said that there's always going to be differences between us and others. Uh, President Uchtdorf talked about those who have lost, uh, who have lost faith in our faith community and have moved on to something else. And all three of those speak genuinely about our need to respect others, to have tolerance, to still serve and love and have compassion, and to not see them as less than simply because they hold a different belief system, or perhaps their belief system is no belief system at all. Uh, but like you're pointing out, we we hope people can cling to faith. We hope people can press forward and find ways to put things back together. We're trying to help uh, them do that. But we want everyone to have validity and respect for the choices they make with the information they have and the decisions that they decide to uh, to move one direction or another with. Yeah, and, and, you, and you just you just said that the phrase cling to faith, and I think many people kind of going through this dark night of the soul, uh, or many people who kind of end up going a different path, you know, they'll they'll kind of look at that phrase cling to faith, and that, that just bugs them, right? That <laughs> they would just be irritated by that idea because I think in their mind when they when someone says cling to faith, what they're imagining is someone who's kind of reverting back to a, a previous position or stage who kind of starts to learn and understand the complexities but then retreats as you mentioned. Um, someone who, you know, sometimes we might characterize as kind of you know, putting their head in the sand and just kind of ignoring, you know, the issues or someone who just kind of has this endless shelf that they are always putting um, these challenging things on. And I know that really bothers <laughs> a lot of people who kind of find their way away from Mormonism. Um, but I don't think that's what you meant at all. Um, and in fact, as we as we self-reflect and as we use these different uh uh, frameworks for understanding development. In fact, clinging, clinging to faith can mean exactly the opposite. It can mean not reverting backwards, but it, it can mean moving forward and embracing your faith community and embracing um, the positives and the good and the, the beauty and the good fruit um, that comes through your faith community in a m- much more complex and nuanced way that still adds value to your life, to your family's life, and it gives you an opportunity to live your faith and to serve those around you. That doesn't mean you have to revert back. It, it means you can move forward and develop in beautiful ways. Um, right. I, I just want everybody to have the right to be their authentic selves. And and often this transition is is such a tough one. We're, we're just having to deal with the world in a completely different way. Whether one remains a member of the church or not, one is going to have to understand that paradigm differently. And and each of us have the absolute right and should feel empowered and should receive uh, receive or should be validated by those around them if they're doing the best they can with the perspective that they've got. And I know members who stay in the church who have no no idea of how some of these things fit together. I know people who have left who understand the issues better than I do. And uh, and so I'm not. I, I appreciate your voice and I appreciate you adding that. I want to be clear, as, as you're pointing out, that we're not demeaning anybody who chooses something different than belief in the LDS Church. It's just my hope that as we work through all these difficult issues, there will be enough room on the table that uh, that 
that we can stay and find a way to make it work. Yeah, and I think I think of the phrase I often hear uh, about people who who get frustrated with these types of things, and they'll refer to kind of the mental gymnastics that they feel like people have to play to make it all work, right? Um, and that's that's kind of making it it's making a pretty big assumption <laughs> uh, when if you say you know someone has to go through all these mental gymnastics. Uh, now certainly. I, that that could be the case, and people uh, are kind of reverting back and kind of uh, uh, purposefully uh, failing to acknowledge things that are right in front of their face and that kind of stuff. That that happens, and and certainly, you know, that can raise a question mark as to what's the you know is that their authentic self and is that the best thing for them moving forward and all that kind of stuff. But I just want to emphasize that to to be someone who remains in the faith community, who finds value in the faith community, and wants um, to live and serve within that faith community doesn't require you to revert back, and it doesn't require those mental gymnastics that I think sometimes people um, characterize it as. Um, it, it does require possibly a, a reframing or kind of a, an embracing of the nuance and ambiguity, but it doesn't require uh, th- those types of mental gymnastics. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I want to add... Um just maybe a couple little thoughts here from Paulian, which, which talks about how to help others through this. He, um, he says this, this for those who are in it, cause there's gonna be people listening to this, uh, episode who are in that dark night of the soul. He, he talks about what won't fix it. He says you cannot deal with the dark night by working 60 hours a week or trying to ignore it. The pain is there for a purpose. God uses it to call people to drink it in and to learn what needs to be learned. The best remedy for the dark night is lots of solitude in which to listen to God's voice, to feel what he is trying to communicate, to think and reflect. And then as far as others who are trying to mentor or trying to help, one, if you if you haven't moved through this, you're not going to be a ton of help in the sense of helping them formulate how to work through it. But you can still be supportive and empathetic. I think we can all do that. But for those who have experienced this dark night of the soul, he says this. He says, how do you mentor someone who is going through a dark night of the soul? He says, very patiently. Uh, he says, high-level mentors are precious resource at this time. Suffering people will dump their hurt, frustrations, anger, and loneliness on you. Don't offer answers the way Job's friends did. Just be present with them. Avoid shock. Just listen and empathize with them as they wrestle with traumatic memories and regret. Share your own dark night. And then he makes the comment, if you haven't been through it, you likely won't be much help. And, and I'm not trying to say that those who have not had a dark night of the soul are less than or, you know, I, I say God bless you. Thank, you know, thank goodness you haven't experienced that. But often in life, to really be able to empathize with someone, to really get down in the dirt with them, it, it needs to, you have to have experienced at least some of what they're experiencing. To, to really put your arm around somebody after they've lost a loved one and say, I know what you're feeling, you really have to have experienced it and know what they're feeling. And, and so maybe just be careful when we're helping people out who are, have gone through or in the dark night of the soul that you don't, um, Simply try to call out to them to, and there's these kind of easy answers in the church. Just read your scriptures more. Just have more faith. Just pray more. If you, if you just do the things the Lord asks you to do, then this will all just fix itself. Well, it's not that simple. This is a, a difficult process. And as you point out, and as I've talked about, this may take years, uh, to work through. Um, so why don't you now kind of take us into Perry's positions that now fall afterward? where one is beginning or has kind of reassembled things in a way that works. 
Yeah, so now we get into this this third broader category for Perry, commitments in relativism developed. So we've kind of gone through this dark night of the soul. Now we're starting to realize that we have to find some way to make it work. Um, we understand that not everything's certain, that no one's necessarily going to tell us um, what's absolutely right or wrong. Um, our, our kind of locus of authority, you know, changes from external to internal. Um, we start to look more internally at, at what um, what we should be doing and why. Uh, but over time, we, we start to gain a, a bit of a comfort level with the ambiguity and the complexity and that maybe, you know, everything that we thought was truth with a capital T isn't actually truth with a capital T, may, but maybe it can still be truth with a small t. Um, and we we become comfortable with that. Um, and and Perry's positions six through eight basically are varying degrees, again, kind of along a spectrum, just varying degrees along the spectrum of becoming more comfortable with with uh, with that new situation that we find ourselves in, where we and we can start to make commitments within that context. When you're in the dark night of the soul and you're really going through this anguish, you know, that's not the time where you're thinking um, necessarily that you're going to be making all of these long-term commitments or that, you know, you're not exactly sure what you should be doing because all, your whole framework for understanding right and wrong is in question. Well, now in, in position six through eight, you're starting to realize, okay, that's fine that that's been in question a little bit, but I can start to reconstruct my framing and, and how I deal with these issues. And it, it just builds it on itself. Um, in, in position six, you can make that, um, you, you can come to the acknowledgement that you're going to have to make your own decisions. In position seven, uh, you can start making commitments again, and you can start saying, okay, even though it may not be truth with a capital T, it's still truth for me, and it still matters, and I'm still going to live my life by it. Uh, in position eight, now you're starting to make a variety of commitments, and you're going to have to find balance. Um, how many commitments, how deep are these commitments, how certain, how tentative are these commitments. And this is, is I, I think everyone deals with this to some extent in their life, regardless of where they're at in, in these stages or these different positions. But at this position in particular, it's, 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 it's just fundamental to where you're at at that point in the reconstruction of your, of your decision-making processes and your, and your faith is what's going to be the depth of my commitment and what's going to be the, how many commitments am I going to have and, and all of this. But remember, this is all now happening post Dark Knight of the Soul. This is now happening not as a reverting back to kind of a Fowler stage three or a Perry's position three, but it's, it's saying knowing everything I know and having all the complexity that's out there, I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm reconstructing how I'm dealing with it, and I'm still now comfortable in being my authentic self by making these commitments. Does that make sense? It, it does. And you mentioned earlier that we begin to get comfortable with our truth being maybe a lowercase t truth and not being a capital T. Can you give can you give any kind of examples so that so that listeners can kind of um, cor- correlate that over to how that would actually apply in the way they're seeing the gospel and inside their faith community? Uh, sure. Uh, hmm. I don't know how much <laughs> we want to get into, for example, different ways of viewing the restoration. That would be an example of a big T versus a small T um, viewing of, of the restoration and the role of Joseph in the restoration or looking at the role of temple ordinances 
um, you know, as kind of this 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 capital T versus a, a lowercase t, um, you know, a lowercase t view of of ordinances um, would certainly find the continued value in those ordinances and how they guide and lead you in your life and the symbolic meaning or the metaphor or um, uh, how they how they can help people grow and develop um, but wouldn't necessarily mean I mean it, it could mean that you still hold to you know a, a, a more absolute view of, of a given ordinance but it wouldn't necessarily mean that you have to hold that view to still make it work for you and to still be something that you're willing to make commitments to and be loyal to and live by. Does that make sense? Right. So rather than simply taking the the absolute stand that temple ordinances were specifically spelled out the way they were they're done is exactly how God wants them to be and and he's implemented them with his own voice and and we all need to do, you know, get involved and and partake that rather than maybe taking that absolute view as the only way to see things, taking a step back and saying there's other ways to see this that that ordinances have value in locking us together in a community. Ordinances have value in encouraging me to press forward and be more like God. Ordinances have the ability to be a reminder to me at times that that maybe I need to, as we've talked about all this episode about self-reflecting and saying, okay, am I where I need to be in my own personal journey? That ordinances can do a lot of other things than simply being it's this gateway back to the celestial kingdom and we all just need to figure out how to be worthy and receive them. And it's not that that view, as you're pointing out, is wrong. It's that there are other ways to see value in the ordinances. You talked earlier about an experience in your ward about somebody talking about, you know, can't believe he's not wearing a white shirt. And the capital T truth view would be that God has said that all priesthood brethren in the church need to wear white shirts and therefore we all just need to do it. That would be a capital T truth. And like you're talking about with that example earlier, I would make that a lower T in the sense that just like with the temple uh, garments that we wear, there's this phrase that we're told that it's an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And for me, the lower case T means that no, there is no rule in the in the handbook, there's no line in the sand that says I need to wear a white shirt, but that whatever my motivations are for not wearing a white shirt, whatever my motivations are for not wearing the temple garment, whatever my motivations are for not doing my home teaching or magnifying my calling, that there's an inward process going on that God is more concerned about than the outward behavior and that for me, the lower T truth is that I am responsible for my own journey. I'm responsible to get myself uh, in a spot where I can feel the spirit and where I can interact with Christ and his grace. And that it's not my job to draw lines in the sand for how everybody else in the church needs to view these same principles or historical facts, but rather focus on how they draw me as an individual to Christ. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I was just going to add, you know, as you were as you were giving that example of of the white shirt, you know, that's that's a really simple example. But for some people who kind of find themselves in this black and white world, they do absolutely see that as truth with a capital T. And and then for many other people, they're like, eh, <laughs> not really. Uh, maybe maybe it's it's just policy or practice, and that would be maybe a lowercase t, or in some cases, not a 
not a truth at all. Um, but I, I t- when I tend to think of you know the truth with a capital T versus a lowercase t, I, I tend to make sense of it in terms of extrinsic versus intrinsic authority in my life. Um, and so truth with a capital T, it has that capital T because someone else told me it has that capital T, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, the prophet said so, so I do it. And I don't necessarily um, think beyond that. I just follow because it was said to do so. Well, there's there's value, though, even if the prophet said it, even if I ultimately choose to do it, there's value in me internalizing the process of making the decision to follow versus just doing it because I was told to do it. And that's what I see as being that, uh, pulling that internally, having that intrinsic motivation and the intrinsic authority that I'm going to be authentic to myself and my conscience and the spirit that speaks to me that I'm going to do this thing. And maybe an authority figure told me to do it, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because of it's it, it has spoken truth to my soul as a truth with a capital T or with a lowercase T. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and maybe I can just reiterate this and, and you can say whether I've got a good handle on it or not, but that you have taken something, you've internalized it, you've made it your truth, but that you're not going to impose the, your truth as someone else's, that, that it's yours and that you get it, you understand that it's something good for you or that it blesses your life. But that you don't need to, you don't feel the need to impose it as an absolute on everyone else around you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So what, uh, what have we not covered? What do we need to, to tackle here, kind of wrapping up or moving towards a conclusion? Uh, well, it leaves us with our last position with Perry. I suppose we should at least <laughs> acknowledge this. And this is, this is, you know, over time and as we develop cognitively, cognitively and it just in terms of kind of a, uh, intellectual and spiritual um, maturity, we get to this point where, as I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, that we wholeheartedly can embrace and accept that this is tentative, um, but that's okay. And the fact that it's tentative and the fact that there aren't firm answers to everything doesn't restrict us from still committing to um, and holding loyal to the values that we have. Um, we can still respect others. We can respect difference. We can respect um, uh, the opinions of those around us. Uh, but we can still hold firm to that that internalized truth that we have uh, within us now. Um, again, it's this is a different type of truth than what we were talking about at the earlier stages or the earlier positions. Now it's very personal. It's not one by which we go around judging other people. Um, but it's it works for me, and it's it's something that I choose to live by because of the fruits that it has borne in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And uh, and I think too, maybe just a couple of other little thoughts that I had as you were saying that um, we talked we've talked continuously continuously through this episode about those who we perceive. And again, we're talking perception, which is an assumption, but we perceive those who are kind of in a stage behind us and we have sometimes feelings of frustration for them. But there's also something to be said of those who are in front of us. It's often impossible or near impossible to really grasp how they've gotten to where they are. It's almost like you just have to simply live this experience and and you may see people I'll, I'll give an example in Mormonism I see Terrell Givens as somebody who's who's a step ahead of or maybe 25 steps ahead of for that matter where I'm at 
And I can't sometimes get how he got to where he is. I'm struggling to get there. And, and there's this lack of grasping how he makes things work at times. And I think often if we're, if we're in stage two, stage three, stage four, whatever it is, whichever one of the positions of Perry, it's, it's going to be hard to really grasp how somebody ahead of us is making that work just as much as we feel a need to be frustrated at those behind us for not making it work where we're at. Uh, I think we just need to be aware of that because it becomes really easy to want to push ahead of where you are, but not really sure how to get there. And also to want to drag people who you perceive as being behind you to where you're at. And, and neither of those are probably going to be healthy. You almost just have to, like I said earlier, you just have to live it. Yeah. You just, you just have to let it play out. And we all have our unique journeys and, and there's, I just don't see any way around that. <laughs> you just, ha- you just have to let, like you said, you just have to let people live it. People who are in like a Fowler's three, um, they, they I, I don't, I'm not sure they can even grasp or understand. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to them how, you know, a, a Terrell Givens could frame his faith. Right. And, uh, and so we just have to let them live it and we have to have charity in the process and that can be difficult, but that's something we have to try to do. Um, in, in, in position nine, one of the things that I really like is just this embracing of the idea that this is a journey. This will be a lifelong journey. And in different aspects of my life, I will loop back, you know, and have to, you know, as I, I as I fall my fall into different life stages and different um, situations with my family or my children or in the, in the workplace or with in my religious faith community or whatever the case may be. You know, it's it's a constant journey. It's a constant process um, over and over and over again. But as I embrace it, um, as Perry says, you can hope more wisely in, in the future and moving forward. And I, I really like that. Yeah, and, and Paulian talks about, I don't want to miss this. I want to make sure I cover this. Paulian um, talks about the idea, too, that there's this first dark night of the soul. Once we move through that, and we've gotten to a point where we handle nuance and we handle complexity. We're dealing with it very well. Um, and I, and I think, I, like you said, we sometimes step back. It's, it's fluid as we pointed out at the very beginning. But I think in general respects, I've gotten to a place and I've always felt like you've done a very good job of, of handling the nuance that's out there and the complexity that's out there. But what Paulian warns about is that there's a second dark night of the soul that looms ahead. And he says this about it. And this is after you've moved through the first dark night of the soul. Everything now fits again in your own way. You've, you've disassembled your religious faith. You've disassembled your world. You've put everything back together in a way that works for you. It may not work for anyone else, but it works for you. And you feel like you've gotten back into this comfortable state. I have not entirely experienced the second dark night of the soul. But as I read from this, there are parts of it that I can relate to. And I think you'll you'll understand that what he's getting at. He says, One would think that the closer you come to God, the more you are in tune with his will and his ways, the more you would be appreciated by others who are also on the spiritual journey. And the more you would be appreciated by religious institutions. But the opposite is often the case. The second dark night of the soul is the discovery that the closer you walk with God, the more out of step you seem to be with religious communities and institutions. 
And I would say that, you know, if you expect to get through these faith transitions, you expect to get to a place where everybody around you says, oh my goodness, there's the next Terrell Givens. He's brilliant. Let's all just, you know, sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say. The reality is all we have to do is look to Jesus Christ and realize that being ahead of the curve brings on a lot of persecution, uh, frustration and hardship. Paleon, or not Paleon, Paulian talks about this, this second dark night, what it's designed to, to do. He says it is designed to help us move past, uh, the idea of our own selfishness and human trappings of success and gravitate towards the call of God. That essentially we're just going to have to set aside the need to be honored and seen as smart or seen as having figured it out. We're going to have to set that need for validation aside and simply do things because it's the right thing to do. And that the second dark night of the soul, it comes along to help us do that. And so maybe for listeners who are coming out of that first dark night, realize that that doesn't mean it's smooth sailing from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I I don't know to what extent you this this resonates with you, Bill, but I, I know for me personally and for others I've talked with, you know, oftentimes there are multiple faith crises, right? <laughs> and 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 you can have over a long period of time multiple faith crises of varying severity um and and what you're describing i i I have experienced to an extent and it's it's absolutely true that you just you get to a point and it it, honestly it's set up in mormonism a little bit this way isn't it because we put so much emphasis on kind of the outward manifestations of things and right or wrong people tend to then lump that into their self-validation you know self-validation and how they view themselves and their self-image and all that kind of stuff and it gets to the point where you just have to that's part of the dissembling process you have to be okay with just separating that out and just being true and authentic to yourself regardless of what you know people around you may think or say um and sometimes it hurts and sometimes you know i i felt in my own life for example i i feel like i'm one who is very committed and loyal and strives to serve and to do these things, yet I feel most of the time that that's not particularly valued or appreciated within the institutional church because I have a a different way of viewing things. And that hurts sometimes. And I don't know any other way around it other than to just say that's the way it is. And if if I make the choice to have this be my lived experience of, of remaining in this faith community because I find value and fruit in this faith community. I also have to be willing to separate myself from, from what I think oftentimes people uh, pull into a huge part of their self, um, their self identity. Yeah. And, and I guess the only thing I would maybe just finish up saying about that point is that while it may, it may be more comfortable to simply be completely silent to not put yourself in any jeopardy of of being seen as threatening, being seen as strange, being seen as a, a belief system that's unfamiliar to their ears, being seen as being outside the box. Maybe the easiest thing to do is to just simply be completely silent at church and not say a thing. But here's what I see as the problem with that. There are other people coming behind you who are entering these same transitional stages and phases and positions. And they need, they need to have somebody within their realm of influence who they can point at and say, yes, 
I understand what he's talking about. That fits for me. That makes sense. That will be the, the safety net in some ways for them. It is so hard to do this on your own by yourself. Uh, which is, you know, which is why we're sitting here on a podcast talking today is because we want others to, to know that they're not alone. I, I would simply say you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to turn people upside down and, and take their foundation out from under them. But you also need to do enough so that others can look to you and say, there's a safe person to go to so that when someone else comes behind you with these same issues, that, uh, that you'll be one that they know they can go to and have a conversation with. So, any finishing thoughts? No, I, you know, this has been a fun discussion. Uh, I, I, I would anticipate that for at least some, uh, listeners, you know, they would say, what are you guys talking about? There's like all these different models and all these different stages. <laughs> and, you know, at one point we're talking about Fowler and then we're talking about Perry and we're talking about all these different positions and, 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 uh, stages and they don't always line up exactly. Um, that may be frustrating to some people, and uh, you know I, I acknowledge that we're 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 looking at this in a little bit more of a uh, a less simple way. I, I I wouldn't say necessarily complex, but just you know uh, when, when I hear these types of things discussed, it's often just within the framing of Fowler, and that's pretty simple. You know, you just look at Fowler three, four, and five. Um, but uh, I hope that people will find it useful. Uh, to see one that there are a variety of these types of frameworks, so it's not just Fowler. It's there, there's many actually more than what we talked about today. Um, so there's lots of ways of framing and looking at these things. They don't all line up perfectly, but there there are strengths and weaknesses to the various um, typologies. And the goal here is to aid in self-reflection and to help people who are in that dark night of the soul to realize that there there is a pathway out. It doesn't have to stay that way always um and and hopefully that can provide some hope for people yeah yeah i uh, i appreciate it john and and i do hope that this will be a, a blessing to members who are just having a hard time i know in emails that i get from listeners who are in the midst of this what we're calling the dark night of the soul in the midst of this that they they the worst thing in the world for them is that they have no one to talk to and they feel alone and I think simply having conversations about these things and, and just showing that, yeah, you know, other people have experienced this and these are some of the tools they've used to work through it. And this is some of the, you know, go find a mentor, use follower and all these other theories as a guide, read on multiple uh, theories of them and try to find the things that are, that are most helpful to you. Uh, find somebody in your ward or stake. And if at worst, find somebody online that you can have a conversation with and bounce questions off of. I remember my first time going into a discussion board right in the middle of my faith crisis and just being as mad as could be that I felt like the church had deceived me and had lied to me. And I'm bouncing questions in this discussion board in this in this thread with maybe a hundred people participating, and ninety of them maybe either either are not responding at all or responding negatively towards me. And this one guy uh, private messages me and says, "Hey, I understand what you're going through. Let's have a conversation." And I begin to carry kind of a a off the thread conversation with him where I shared with him what I was feeling. And that, for me, was the very first moment where I felt like, okay, things are beginning to move more positively. And if I if I say nothing else, it's find somebody, hopefully in your real world, but if not uh, on the internet, 
that you can talk to and relate to and ask questions to. Uh, and again, hopefully we've provided some resources, but the last thing we want anybody to do is go through this whole thing on their own. It's, it's just too tough and too hard. And, and, uh, John, if I can maybe just speak for a moment, uh, you and I kind of got in contact with each other right uh, towards the beginning, I think of my faith crisis and, uh, you've been a huge help and, and so I hope, uh, like you, others will find uh, their John Westover to talk to. Well, I appreciate that, Bill, and I can say the feeling's mutual. Um, and that's that's the beauty of these types of mentoring relationships, uh, or just relationships generally. That you know, there's there's uh, mutual support, and and I've certainly felt that um, uh, with you, Bill, and with others that I've interacted with. Uh, nobody wants to go through this alone. Nobody wants to feel like they're an island. People want to feel like they are understood and that there's people they can talk to. And it just becomes very difficult <laughs> within church culture generally, you know, to, to have these types of discussions. And so, uh, hopefully, uh, you can find that person and, uh, hopefully more than one, but at least that one person that you can have some discussions with that can, that can help you as you're working your way through these things. Uh, that's certainly our hope. Awesome. Thank you, John Westover, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.